0: welcome to another abiding thought Um, now as we record this this is after the celebration of resurrection Sunday but I do want to uh, cite a verse from the most exhaustive and extensive treatment or apologetic on the resurrection that we have in scriptures which is first Corinthians 15 and the verse I want to read is actually the uh, concluding verse In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, it says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And that is such a powerful and uh, beautiful verse and an incentive, really, as well as encouragement for Christians in the performance of our Christian duty. So what I want to do, and this is in light of the resurrection, that's uh, Paul's final statement, actually, in verse uh, in chapter 15, as he has unpacked the logical and theological substance of the resurrection. He's looked at it as a historical fact. He's given the logical um, inference of the resurrection or the absence thereof. If Christ is not raised, then those who die have... Or if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. And if he is not risen, and we say that he is, then he says we are liars. But apart from all of that, Paul now takes it to the final conclusion. And his point is that the fact of the resurrection is our greatest incentive in doing the will of God. So before, as a means of unpacking the substance of what is contained in this final verse, I want to kind of walk us up to the significance of that statement. And so we go all the way back to creation. And so the first thing is what what gives this context, what gives this meaning, is the fact that we are first off created in the image of God for the purpose of doing the will of God. That's what we've been created for. Westminster Confession says that the chief duty of man, the chief end of man, is to glorify God and enjoy him. And we glorify him by doing what we've been created to do, which is to represent him, to worship him, to honor him, to obey him. The law of God is written on the hearts of of all that have been created in his image. Our created purpose is to do the will of God. Secondly, Because of the fall of Adam, we are born into a condition that renders us unable to do the will of God. Now, that does not mean that we can't do some good. It doesn't mean that we can't enjoy certain things. But in the ultimate sense, in which we were created, or the ultimate purpose that we we were created for was to do His will, which is why in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer ascribes to Jesus at the point of his, his, his conception, he ascribes to him the words of David in Psalms 40, verses 6 through 8, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me to do your will, O God. Our condition, and this is why it's so important to understand or to make the distinction between sinful deeds and our sinful condition sinful deeds are actions that flow out of the condition. The condition that we have inherited from Adam is an inability to do the will of God to the degree that God has required. So that's it. We are not able to do the will of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. So even in our good deeds, even the things that we are able to perform properly, we're not able to do it to the degree and the extent that is required by the law. This is what Jesus illustrates in his Sermon on the Mount when he says, you have heard it said, thou shalt not do this or the other, and then he takes it another step further. You've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. But I say that if you're angry with your brother without any just cause, then you are guilty of murder. You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say that if you have had lustful thoughts in your hearts, then you are guilty of adultery. Again, demonstrating that our condition, and certainly, let me just back up, certainly the person that abstains from physically taking a life, it could indeed be a good law-abiding citizen, and a good neighbor, relatively speaking, for us. And so in the courts of man, we can't judge people and convict them according to what's in their hearts. But God, who is the holy judge over all, he does convict and condemn because of what's in the heart. So even if we, so so we should we should commend our neighbors for not everyone not being a mass murderer. That's a good thing. But because we have not physically taken a life, does not mean that in in the courtroom of God, he doesn't look at us as murderers. And of course, the person who does not. Uh, carry out sexual immorality and, and such a and, and don't live off of the lust that's in their hearts. They are a much better person to deal with, relatively speaking, than the person who is just a serial fornicator, raper, rapist, or adulterer. Yes, that's, that's better in terms of their family relations and in terms of their interactions with humans. But as far as God is concerned, If we've entertained any lustful thoughts, then we are guilty of the whole commandment, of violating the whole commandment. And Paul even goes so far in uh, Galatians to say that if you are guilty not only of of the, the spiritual, for violating the spiritual intent of any law, but Paul says if you are guilty of any law, then you're guilty of the whole thing. So in our fallen state, We are born into a condition where we are not able to maintain or keep the law of God. And therefore, as Paul says again, (laughs) that we have all fallen short of the glory or the standard to which God has called us to, which brings us to a third thing, death. And by death, I mean both physical and temporal death as well as spiritual and eternal death is the the consequence of our failure to do the will of God. And here's the distinction. Physical and temporal death simply means the the, the ceasing of our physical existence that we 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 no longer are conscious. We are not we've lost all ability of of our bodies to function. We are dead, physically dead. That's that's why we have funerals. That's physical and temporal death. And the point being, physical and temporal death is only a precursor to eternal and spiritual death. And so therefore, um, whether it's physical and temporal death or spiritual and eternal death, the consequence of failing to do the will of God is first we do die, and in a sense, as soon as Adam committed his sin, in a sense, he spiritually died in that he fell into that condition where he was unable to now do the will of God. And being vertically disconnected from God, that meant the sentence of death was now in his body. And so although he went on to live an extended period of time, he in essence died the day that he ate, because that is the sentence. So here's what we know. Our inability to do the will of God results in the consequence of physical and temporal death, which is itself a precursor of spiritual and eternal death, which is what God will hand out in the day of judgment, in the consummation. So all of this is the result of our failure to do the will of God. That's why, again, Paul in Romans, in Romans chapter 6, he says the wages of sin is death. And he means by death the temporal and physical death where we cease to exist among the living and then the spiritual and ultimate and eternal death which will be meted out in the day of judgment. Here's the fourth thing. As our federal head, Jesus has done the will of God in human flesh. And in doing the will of God, he has done everything that is required by the two tables of the law. And the good news is for those who look to him by faith, he gives us credit or God gives us credit for the righteousness or uh, the will of God accomplished by Jesus in his flesh. That's the good news. Jesus has done everything that is required of us. He has kept Both tables of the law, that's why he says, uh, that's why the words are ascribed to him in Hebrews 10. Sacrifice and offering, which means those things that are necessary in order to atone for sin, is not what we were created for. We were not created to atone for sin. We were created to be in fellowship with God, but God instituted means by which we could seek atonement according to his promise, because that was always going to be fulfilled in Jesus. But what God created us for was to do his will. And the need for atonement and the means for atonement are a consequence of our failure to do his will. So Jesus, in his flesh, as our federal head, has done everything that God has required of us and he has given us credit or God has given us credit for it. Which brings us to the fifth thing. In his death, Jesus has paid the penalty for our failure. In his physical death, he he experienced both physical and spiritual death. He experienced the temporal and the eternal death that was hanging over us Because of our failure to do the will of God. So in his death, he has paid the penalty for all of our failures. Which brings us to the sixth thing. In his resurrection, he has therefore rendered physical death idle. And he has removed the threat of spiritual death. Paul elsewhere says that he has rendered death idle, which does not mean that as believers we do not die physical temporal death. We do, and we must die physically. We must be planted in the ground until Jesus returns. We must be planted in the ground so that we could be raised new fruit. We will die physically, but physical death for believers has been disconnected from eternal death. So therefore, he has rendered physical, physical death idle, and he has removed the very threat of spiritual death. And that's what leads us to the great triumphant statement that we have in 1 Corinthians 15. The end result is that we are now free to do the will of God without fear of it ever being rejected. And it's for that reason that Paul closes his discourse and is apologetic on the dynamics of the resurrection by saying, Therefore, brothers, let us be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because here's what we know. All that we do in him is not in vain. Now, I know sometimes we will look around and we will think because people don't appreciate, other people don't appreciate the goodwill that we do or our efforts to try to please God, they may not appreciate it. And because we are still in the flesh, we will sometimes expect immediate responses from God. A good old attaboy. That all of our enemies will be silenced and we will always experience this great joy from doing his will. But it's not always going to be experienced in the here and now. The reality is, the problem of sin has been resolved. And there is nothing that we do in the Lord concerning doing the will of the Lord that is not received by, by God Through our great high priest who is Christ. So therefore don't be discouraged and don't be defeated because you don't always see an immediate response from the good that we do. Be steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord because we know that our labor in him is not in vain. How do we know? because he's risen and he is ascended to the right hand of the father and all that the father that brings joy to the father all that delights the father has been met in him so therefore the pleasure of the lord is always with those who stand in the power of the resurrected savior amen